You think? <laughs> hey, last year I said that marriage and family is a place of spiritual warfare. And technology is too. That's a place of spiritual warfare as well because uh, the devil don't want us doing what we're doing here today. Isn't that true? Amen? Huh? Oh man, we've been fighting with the technology and boy did we come in under the wire here. And uh, I might be a little challenged. Uh, I guess up here you can see the PowerPoint if you're up there. I, I prefer to be here, but it's going to be hard for me to not know what PowerPoint we are on. So I'm just going to go ahead and move up here. Do you notice a little sweat on the back of my... Oh, man, I've been up and down those stairs and... Oh, we brought it in under the wire here. Let me see if I... Yes, we've got this working. Oh, I'm so excited. It's good to be here today. I'll just go ahead and tell you, I'll probably take a few extra minutes with our slow start with the technology, but I'm excited about what we're talking about today. Have you ever considered the greatest one of the world? You know, it sounds like one of those questions you would ask at a beauty pageant or something, right? They would ask the contestants, well, what is the greatest one of the world? And you know the answer at a beauty pageant, the answer is always what? World peace, exactly. It's the world peace, the greatest one of the world. Well, a former colleague of mine, a good and godly man in his own right, died one day while actually talking to a student. And uh, when I went into his office a few days later, there was this writing hanging on his wall, which now stands, hangs in my office. The greatest one of the world is the one of godly men, men who will not be bought or sold, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest, men who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole. Men who will stand for the right, though the heavens fall. Oh, I'm going to suggest to you that we need to raise the bar. We need to raise the level of expectation, the standard for ourselves as godly men. I even challenge women. I challenge my uh, female students. You need to raise the bar the level of expectation that you have for the men in your life. This reading says that they are men of principle, men of conviction and integrity, men of righteousness. And you know, when I pondered the, that question, what is the greatest one of the world? And even as I pondered the idea the greatest one of the world is world peace, it occurred to me, listen to me, if indeed we want world peace, we need more godly men. If righteousness exalts a nation and we will ever have a nation that exalts righteousness, we need more godly men. If we want communities where it's safe for children to walk home by themselves, we need more godly men. If we want more powerful and influential churches, we need more godly men. If we want stable and satisfying marriages that will last a lifetime, hear me, we need more godly men. If we want well-adjusted and faithful teenagers, we need more godly men. Amen. 
Matter of fact, James Dobson actually said, our very survival as a nation will depend on the presence or absence of masculine leadership in the home. And I would ask you, well, why? Why will it depend on the presence or absence of masculine leadership in the home? And I would suggest to you this, there is one thing that I know about men, and it is that your influence will not be neutral. That your influence as a husband and father will never be neutral. You have it within you to be an incredible influence for good in the life of your wife and children. Or hear me, you have it within you to do unspeakable harm. You have it in you to breathe life into your church and your community and your workplace. Or you have it within you to do immeasurable harm. But I am confident of this. Your influence as men will not be neutral. We need to raise the bar, the level of expectation of ourselves as men, as husbands and fathers, as preachers, and as elders. And to the women in the audience uh, today will be relevant to you as well. Uh, I would suggest to you that your influence will not be neutral either. Because you either have it within you to be a strength, to be an encouragement to him, or you have it within you by your words and actions to defeat him in his quest to be a godly man, to diminish him in some way. Well, what does it mean to be a real man? My son and I had some fun with that. Uh, over the years, uh, as I would drive him to school in the early morning hours, we would do kind of the real men thing. We would like, real men don't. You hear a lot of social messages about men, and so we would have a little fun with it as a way of entering into some important conversations. So some of those that we came up with were real men don't call for a fair catch. You know, you like to watch football. You know, the last person I'd want to be would be the punt returner. Hey, if you're a real man, you don't stick up a hand and wait. You don't call for a fair catch if you're a real man. Real men don't buy flight insurance. Real men don't eat quiche. Matter of fact, if you're a real man, you don't even know what quiche is. Real men don't play a game like Frisbee. It's a non-contact sport, and we know real men don't say I was wrong, and real men don't ask for directions even when everybody in the car knows he's lost, right? Real men don't have to read the instructions. And my most recent one is real men don't use a straw. You know, they come and ask you, hey, you want a straw? And I'm like, no, real men don't use a straw. I suggest to you that there are a lot of social messages about what it means to be a real man some of them are mixed messages and a bit confusing. That's what led uh, John Eldridge to say, society at large can't make up its mind about men. Having spent the last 30 years redefining masculinity into something more sensitive, safe, manageable, and, well, feminine, it now berates men for not being men. Where are all the real men, you ask? You ask them to become women, I want to say. The result is a gender confusion never experienced at such a wide level in the history of the world. And couldn't we amen that today? That was written in 2001. And it's truer today. There's a lot of confusion out there about what it means to be a real man and certainly what it 
means to be a godly man. Man. I had a colleague who was at a conference and the speaker was talking about how men needed to be more sensitive and kind of that message of men needed to be more like women. And so he's kind of assertive. He raised his hand and he said, so what I hear you saying is that men ought to become like women. He said the speaker was speechless because, yes, indeed, that's what he seemed to be saying. Now, that may be true to some degree, and uh, you'll see it here a bit in my presentation, but I'm here to tell you most of the men that I rub elbows with don't receive that message very well. Well, you need to just become and be more like her. So what I'd like to do with you is contrast what I would consider a social definition of masculinity, a cultural definition of masculinity, what I believe to be a biblical model of masculinity. To understand uh, powerful social messages and cultural messages about real men, some of them in a recent uh, advertisement on TV, I've noticed, uh, we need to speak of a man's three greatest fears. Now, we may not call them fears. We may not think of them that way, but we all know it's true. We all know it's there. But these three greatest fears go into defining a social uh, definition of masculinity. For example, a real man is a hunter and provider. He fears failure. Most men you talk to will, at some level, will probably say, yes, he fears failure. Can you imagine in the tribal days what it was like when you, uh, uh, the, men, the women and children uh, stayed home and tended to the garden and the, the men went out hunting, indeed, because they were physically stronger and faster and such, and they had their spears and can you imagine what it was like with the women and children anticipating you coming back with fresh game and there was going to be a feast and festival and happiness and they see the men coming from a distance, you know, and they normally have their pole where they're carrying the wild game, you know, and they're beating their drums and dancing and such and the men are returning from a successful hunt and then as they get closer and closer, they notice the men are returning empty-handed. I wonder what that was like if you failed as a hunter and provider. Perhaps that explains why so many of us work too much and get caught up in the pursuits of materialism and such. Let me suggest this to you. If success is the measure of a man, listen to me. Don't be surprised if acquiring the symbols of success don't become rather important to him. Why is it that, uh, don't mean to step on any toes here, but I went fishing yesterday, and why is it that a man will, uh, will spend $40,000 on a truck and $35,000 on a boat to go fishing twice a month and catch four or five pounds of fish? It's because he needs the symbols of success. I can at least look the part, whether I can actually afford it or not. So if a real man is a hunter and provider and fears failure, he is likely to seek to prove himself in the world of work. And he may just work too much for his own good and for his family's good. A real man is a stud. He fears rejection. And if a real man fears rejection, he is likely to seek to prove himself in the world of women. I would suggest to you that men from a very early age, even as young boys, get 
inundated with powerful social messages that say a real man is measured by his ability to attract women, to win the attention and favor and capitulation of women. Perhaps that helps explain why 50% of all divorce decrees today cite some form of sexual infidelity as a root cause. Perhaps that explains why in our culture today there's an epidemic, listen to me, an outright epidemic of pornographic addiction, a pseudo-intimacy, a false sense of intimacy that is rampant within our society and to which the church is not immune. For if a real man is a stud and he fears rejection, he will seek to prove himself in the world of women, even if it is a fantasy, fictitious, pseudo-intimacy. You with me? And a real man is a hunter, and a real man is a, a fighter. He fears powerlessness. I don't know if uh, you recall, but I remember being a, a young uh, boy, and, and if a real man is a fighter and he fears powerlessness, he needs adversaries. So as a young boy, I remember playing uh, king of the mountain, and we would find some big dirt pile in the neighborhood somewhere, and we would climb up top, and, and the task was to throw off the, the, the other young men, right, and be king of the mountain. I remember playing that game, and you needed adversaries. You needed people with whom you could show your power. You're stronger than them. And then as adults, it's interesting how we continue to play those kind of games that suggest that we as men are powerful. Maybe that's why it's so common to hear about road rage, where two guys are out there trying to prove their manhood by who can drive their chariot the fastest. We need fictitious competitors with whom we do battle. And listen to me. We will even seek to prove ourselves in vicarious ways. I don't want to lose my audience today, but I have to be honest with you. The more I think about this, uh, the more it concerns me. If a real man fears powerlessness, he will seek to prove himself in the world of competition. Listen to me. Even a pseudo, even a fictitious, even a fantasy world of competition. So let me, in the interest of full disclosure, say to you that I enjoy sports, and this is Super Bowl Sunday, and there have been years where I have owned the NFL package and the college game day package. I could watch football from Thursday through Sunday. But as the years have gone by, I have become increasingly concerned about our consumption with sports and competition and the spiritual implications for our marriages and our families Perhaps that explains the psychology of sports and why we will pay coaches seven to ten million dollars a year to produce a winner. Because if my team wins, guess what? I feel like a winner. If my team can beat your team, I feel more powerful. It's interesting how we accuse men of not being very emotional, not being very expressive except maybe when it comes to anger or maybe except when it comes to sports and competition. I've been there. I attended Florida State 
during the Bobby Bowden days, the heydays, 80,000 people, including my son and I, doing the chop. Doing the chop. Wasn't a good year this year. We didn't do much chopping. But anyhow, how do you explain that grown men, 40 years old, will line up in a row, take off their shirt in 18-degree weather and paint Green Bay Packers on their chest and scream and holler for a bunch of other men running up and down a field with a little leather ball. I'm, I'm here to tell you, don't want to lose my audience, but the psychology and spirituality of sports has become increasingly concerning to me over the years. I went to a, a respected theologian I, I know, and I asked him, I'm like, hey, is, is there anything, any place in Scripture where competition is considered a virtue? I said, I can't find any place in Scripture. I know Scripture talks about being excellent, running the race, but, but there everybody wins. I'm talking about where somebody wins and somebody loses is considered virtuous. And he agreed with me. I can't find a place in Scripture where competition, for the sake of competition and winning and losing, is virtuous. And so when I think about the psychology and spirituality of sports, why is it men become so emotional, so passionate about those things? And here's what the research would suggest. We become emotional and passionate about those things that tap into our core identity. If it tugs at my identity, I'm going to be pretty emotional and passionate about it. If my wife says, you're not a very good provider, that hits at my core identity. If she says, you're not a very spiritual and godly man, that hits at my core identity. I'm very passionate and emotional about those things. Why is it we become so passionate and emotional about sports? It's because we place our identity there. And I know the story of a Detroit Lions fan whose son would not put on the Detroit Lions jersey. He would not claim identity with the Lions, and his father took his son, bound him with duct tape, and taped the jersey to him. You will have the identity of a Detroit Lion, and fortunately or unfortunately, his wife called the police and he was promptly arrested. Now listen to me. I enjoy sports. I certainly enjoy football. But I'm here to tell you, I wish men would spend as much time talking about being on God's team as they do my team. I wish men could uh, talk to a stranger about their identity in Christ as readily as they can talk to a stranger about their team. I wish we would spend less time talking about which team is number one and more time talking about he who is number one. And should be number one in our lives. So my son and I had a pretty serious conversation about this. Uh, if you know the story of Florida State, Bobby Bowden, he lost any number of those heartbreakers. And, you know, wide right and wide left. And all we'd done. Listen, we'd be sitting there watching the game, high-fiving, screaming and hollering and all that, and then it would come down to the last second, and he'd miss it wide right or wide left, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'd wake up thinking if he'd have just kicked it straight, I would be national champion. Isn't it interesting the way we talk? My team, 
What do you mean your team? Do you own any stock? No. Do you pay the payroll? No. Do you know the players? No. But it's your team. It's all because you place your identity there. And hear me say it. My son and I got upset one of those years when Florida State was in the big game and they lost it in the last minute. And I looked at my son and I said, son, if we get this emotional about what a group of 18, 19, 20-year-old boys do on a Saturday afternoon, we have gotten way too close to it. And I said, don't you ever forget what I'm about to tell you. And I said to him, your identity is in Christ. Let me go back. A godly man will find his greatest sense of identity, his greatest sense of masculinity in Christ. John 1, 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You are a child of God. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance to with his pleasure and his will. You are a son of God. For all of those who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Whose jersey do you wear? Scripture says you are clothed in Christ. Where is your victory? Scripture says everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. For everyone born of God overcomes the world this is a victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And I'm like, Alan, don't you ever forget this. Your victory is in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. It is not in some team. It's not in a group of 18, 20-year-old boys. And this scripture. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And after one of those heart-wrenching losses, my son and I prayed together that we would never get that close to sports again, that we would never place that much of our identity in our team. And we literally prayed that we would keep sports in its right place and never forget that our identity as men is in Christ, that our victory as men is in the cross and what Jesus has done there. Amen. And when we have a tough year like Florida State has this year, had this year, it just does my heart good to get a text message from him on one of those ugly Saturday afternoons. And he says, Dad, thankful my identity's not in the football team. My victory is in Christ. Amen. He got the message. And we have worked hard since then to try to keep sports in its proper place. So if our identity is in Christ, if our masculinity is in Christ, what does that look like? Let me see if I can sprint here and get to where we need to be. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 9, Paul opposes several traits in people that are often included in a worldly or cultural definition of masculinity. He opposes being lovers of money, boastful and proud, being ungrateful, without love, unforgiving, without self-control, being conceited, and lovers of pleasure. Many things that our culture would hold up for men to pursue and to identify with. I like uh, the way Gordon MacDonald said it. He says, I suggest that men 
invest an inordinate amount of time worrying over the genuineness of their manhood. That's why it's tempting for men to become more interested in the, watch this, image of manhood than the substance of manhood. And I would say, amen. We have far too many men who are interested in and concerned about the image of manhood, looking the part, following the social script, and not the substance of manhood and what God would call us to be. David Blankenhorn says, we must rehabilitate for modern conditions the good family man. This compliment was once widely heard in our culture bestowed on those deserving it as a badge of honor. Rough translation, what's this? He puts his family first. Ponder the three words, good. He's a man of moral values. Family, he has purposes larger than himself. And man, there is some norm of masculinity. Yet today, especially within the elite culture, the phrase sounds antiquated, almost embarrassing. Oh, I can remember a time where it was not unusual at all to hear a man say, I want to make things better for my children than they were for me. And I can remember hearing the late Willard Tate, who some of you know many years ago, he says, I think we're looking at the first generation of men who are willing to sacrifice the well-being of their marriage and their children to pursue their own ambitions and interests and such. And I think he's right. Blankenhorn goes on to say, Part of the reason, of course, is the modern gender role revolution. The good family man comes, uh, comes with a lingering connotation of sole breadwinner and head of the family. Yet it is also true that contemporary American culture simply no longer celebrates among its various and competing norms of masculinity a widely shared and compelling ideal of the man who puts his family first. Especially since some, even much of today's family dilemma stems simply from male abandonment, male flight, from family obligation of epidemic proportions. Surely we must revive a widely shared conception of the good and godly family man. So I don't know if I have time for you to help me here, but I need to try to sprint to the finish line. What would a biblical model of masculinity look like? Hey, let me hear from you uh, rather quickly, though. What do you think are the qualities that must, a man must possess if he were to be a successful police officer, sergeant in the Army, highway patrolman? Throw some out here for me. Anybody? That's all the time I got. So let me just give you the ones. Since my time is fleeting, let me just give you the ones that come to my mind. It's like, hey, if you're going to be a highway patrolman and you're going to walk up and tap on somebody's window at 2 o'clock in the morning, you best be Ford tough. You best not be a mild-mannered sort of guy, right? If uh, uh, you need to be a bit assertive about you, and there may be times when you need to be aggressive. You certainly need to be authoritative. You best be courageous and maybe even a risk-taker. You should be decisive. You, you should be in control. You should be able to take charge. You need to be strong and, yes, powerful in ways, and you need to be protective. Aren't those the kinds of qualities we would say, hey, a man needs to possess 
possess if he's going to be a highway patrolman, sergeant in the army? How about a good lawyer? Look, if I've got some folks coming after me, I'm going to hire me a lawyer, and I hope he possesses all of those qualities. Are you with me? Amen. Smalley and Trent uh, uh, talk in terms of two swords of power. We're going to paint a metaphor here for you. They talk about men possessing two swords of power. One of those is called the silver sword. It really reflects qualities that a man must possess and oftentimes uses in the workplace because it reflects his positional power. It's positional power. A place of authority, a place of decision, of leadership. And look at these qualities. You best be forward tough, assertive, maybe even aggressive. How about ambitious and results-oriented, success-oriented, in charge, authoritative, decisive, a leader, in control, courageous, strong, a risk-taker, guarded. Confident, knowledgeable. You know, in, in uh, the legal world, in the business world, knowledge is confidence, right? It gives you a certain amount of power and control. That's silver sword qualities by Smalley and Trent. It's your positional power. And I would suggest to you, if it's a biblical model of masculinity, then I should be able to show you where Jesus took up a silver sword, right? Uh, we're going to try it. Video, cleansing the temple. A picture is worth a thousand words. We're hoping here. Maybe I took a little too much risk. Maybe we won't. <laughs> Matthew 21, 12 through 17 John chapter 2, 13 through 22. And I'm not seeing a video. Are we aborting? I think we are. Matthew 21, 12 through. Here we go. Let's see. Well, trust me, it's an excellent video. Go home and watch it. Oh, look, I could read the scripture, but you know the story, right? Jesus cleanses the temple. He didn't come in there like some mild-mannered, hey, would you guys, you guys really shouldn't be doing this. Would you mind taking your tables and things out? He didn't do that. He came in there and he turned, he had a righteous anger towards ungodliness. He was assertive. He was aggressive. He turned over tables. Money was scattered around. He, it says he made a whip and did what? Drove them out. Jesus could be a man's man. He was physically fit. He was strong. He could take up a silver sword. If we were to go to other occasions, he would look at the, the Pharisees and Sadducees and point at them and say, you brood of vipers, you hypocrites. He wasn't just some mild-mannered, soft-spoken kind of guy. He could take up a gold sword. He, matter of fact, John chapter 13, he says, uh, God, 
God has placed all power unto me. I've come from the Father. I'm returning to the Father. He knew his positional power. He knew who he was. It's okay to be Ford tough. But small and Trent then go on and talk about if I can get the PowerPoints back. Go ahead. They go on and talk about a different kind of sword. They talk about a gold sword. And a gold sword represents a man's personal power. Not positional power. Listen to me. Personal power. And it is the ability to establish meaningful relationships. It is the ability to relate to people in such a way where you touch their hearts, you capture their hearts, and you can influence their lives. It's a different kind of sword. It's a different kind of power. I call it personal power. Here are some of the adjectives that describe the personal power. Inner character, influential, Caring, understanding, being affectionate, sacrificial, respectful, a good listener, considerate, warm, compassionate, attentive, involved, empathetic, sensitive, nurturing, expressive, vulnerable, and protective of others. All right. Thank you. And we're not going to show the video here. I'll just, uh, if I can move beyond it. Oh, did Jesus take up a gold sword? Did he have personal power? I'm going to suggest to you that's exactly what's taking place in John chapter 13. I talked about it last year when I was with you. In John chapter 13, it says he's going to show them how to love each other, right? And he first says that uh, he had come from the Father, was returning to the Father, all power had been given unto him. Jesus knew who he was, that he was Lord, ruler, master. He knew he possessed a silver sword. And then he says, starts washing their feet. And when he's opposed by Peter, he says, Peter, if you don't understand what I'm teaching you right now, don't even claim to have any part of me. There's a different kind of sword you need to take up. You need to take up a gold sword of personal power that will allow you to touch the hearts and minds of others to influence the life of others. They wanted a ruler, he gave them a servant. They wanted a man of power, and he gave them a man of gentleness and humility. They wanted a man beyond worldly reproach, and he ate with sinners. They tried to send the children away from him. He took the little ones in his arms and blessed them. They wanted him to save them immediately from earthly troubles. He gave them up, up his life to save them for eternity. I don't have time to share the entire story with you, but it's the story of men who are powerful, yet, listen to me, powerless. It's the story of Ty, who, who flew F-16 fighter jets for the Air Force. Can you imagine the, the positional power, the silver sword power, when you're in the cockpit of, of an F-16 and all you have to do is push the button and you can annihilate a city block? That is some kind of positional power and authority. Amen. And yet Ty was in a cafe with Smalley, Greg Smalley, 
Gary Smalley, late one night, drank, drinking stale coffee, and he was losing his marriage and losing his family. Why? Because Ty was a silver sword man. He didn't know how to hang up a silver sword when he goes home and take up a gold sword from the mantle and touch the hearts and minds of his wife and children, capture the hearts and minds of his wife and children. Oh yes, he was powerful, but he was utterly powerless because he failed to take up a different kind of sword. In what way can a man be powerful yet powerless? Oh yes, you can have all kinds of silver sword positional power. And if you don't develop another side of you, you be powerless to capture the hearts of people. I see it not only in husbands and wives, but I see it in elders sometimes who are good businessmen. They know how to make decisions and make a living, but there's another side of themselves that they like, that they need to cultivate. They have a hard time shepherding people and touching and capturing the hearts of people. I see it in ministers as well. I see it in myself. Most of what I talk about is from my experience. So a question we might ask, is it a matter of choosing between the two swords? Does it have to be one or the other? And that's what I like about this message. Listen to me. The message is this. Godly men are like Jesus. They know how to take up both swords. They just know when and where to use them. So that when they uh, go into the battle of day-to-day -day work, oftentimes uh, requiring the qualities of a silver sword, when they go home, listen to me, they hang up their silver sword on the porch post, they walk in their house, they go over to the mantle, and they take down a gold sword of different kind of qualities to capture the hearts and mind of their wife and children. You with me? Amen. It's not one or the other. It's not good or bad. It's you need to possess both and learn when and where to use them. Does that make sense? Let me close with this. Is there ever a time when a man uses a silver sword at home? I'll keep this brief and maybe give you one example. The primary use of the silver sword at home, those kinds of qualities, your assertiveness, sometimes maybe even aggressive, the primary place you use a silver sword at home is to protect your family. And I can remember when my daughter was 16 years old and some guy would show up, come walking up my driveway, and I'm like, here comes trouble. I would walk out of my front door, reach up over on my porch where I hung my silver sword and take it down and say, you may as well turn and leave. Don't come back. You see what I mean? Yeah, you need a silver sword at home sometimes to protect your children from all kinds of influences that would come into your home and into their life. But listen to me. Let me close with this. When you examine the life of Jesus, the day-to-day -day manner and tenor of his life was that of a gold sword man. He washed feet. And he said, now that I, your Lord, your master, have washed your feet, you wash one another's feet. You take up a gold sword and leading your wife and your children. Let me pray us out. Father, we just pray that you would uh, challenge us as men 
to raise the bar, the level of expectation for ourselves, that we would be the godly men that you call us to be. May we be a blessing to the life of our wife and our children. May we be a reflection of Jesus unto them. Yes, indeed, may we take up the qualities of a gold sword in ways that allow us to capture their hearts and influence their lives. It's through Christ we pray these things. Amen.